0: The coronavirus crisis has prompted a massive response from central banks and governments around the world to help prop up the global economy. In March, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to zero, and it isn't the only central bank that has lowered interest rates in recent weeks. But low interest rates have been a theme for longer than the past six weeks. The truth is they've been declining since the early 1980s. So how did we get here? And what do low interest rates mean for investors who rely on generating income from their investment portfolios? On this episode of The Bid, We'll speak with Michael Fredericks, head of income investing for BlackRock's Multi Asset Strategies Group. We'll get his perspective on why interest rates became so low in the first place, what stage of the recovery we are in now, and where he's finding investment opportunities in today's markets. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We hope you enjoy. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on The Bid. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Under normal market conditions, we would both be commuting into New York City, into the same building, and in fact, on the same floor. It turns out you and I sit pretty close to each other, but we haven't seen each other for many weeks, so I'm glad that we have this opportunity to talk. I wanted to ask you about interest rates first, because last month, the Fed cut rates back to zero, and I'm curious to hear from your perspective why the Fed acted so quickly, but Perhaps taking a step back, how did we go from double-digit interest rates in the 1980s to zero?
1: Yeah, it's been an amazing shift in the interest rate environment, going back to your point, to the double-digit years of the 80s to here where you have short-term interest rates essentially pegged at zero and even longer-term rates like 10-year treasuries below 1%. And you look back in 1990, The 10-year Treasury had a yield of about 8%. And then 10 years later, in 2000, it was down to 6%. And then in 2010, it was down to 4%. And then here we are, sub 1% today. And given all the uncertainty in the world today, it feels like we're going to be in a really low-rate environment for the foreseeable future. But to your point, your question, how do we get here? I think a few key things contributed to this tumble in interest rates one was, look, I think we have to accept that the rate of economic growth has been decelerating over roughly that same time period. So if you went back and looked at GDP growth rates back in the 90s and even into parts of the early 2000s, growth was running reliably at 3 to 4%. And really since the end of the financial crisis, that number's been more like 2%. Also, if you went back to 1990 and even 2000, inflation was running higher than it was today. And also since the financial crisis, just inflation has been stubbornly low. And then finally, there's some demographic issues here where people are coming out of the workforce as more and more people retire. And that has been collectively a bit of a drag on productivity growth. And it's a bit circular, but it's contributed to a world where, Just global growth is slower than it was, and that's all been exacerbating these problems with falling interest rates. Well, it's interesting because I'm
0: remembering the anecdote that my dad told me once that back in the early 1980s, just to give you a sense of how high interest rates were back then, that he slept outside a bank in order to be able to qualify for a lower rate on a mortgage that he was applying for, for a house that my mom and dad eventually bought. So it's before a time that I can really remember, but it gives me a sense of what The environment must have been like back then. And one thing that I can remember, however, is that over the last many years, the market experts have been predicting that interest rates would go up eventually. And we had sort of started to go back in that direction. But as we just said, we're back at zero. So why have the experts consistently gotten this wrong? And what does the market think now in terms of the future path
1: of interest rates? I think many of us, including I'll put myself in this camp, thought that Rates would be higher. Over the last 10 years, this recovery after the financial crisis has been stubbornly low. And it's also worth remembering that the market is a global market. The market and the demand for safe haven assets like US treasuries is not just coming from US investors, but also from investors in Europe and other parts of the world where rates are even lower than they are here. So The extremely slow growth that you see in Europe contributes to the demand from European investors buying U.S. Treasury bonds and driving up the price. And the way the bond math works, the price is up, the yields are lower. But, you know, I think more to your point, this idea of what did the market get wrong along the way and what were expectations, I think this is really fascinating because there is a betting market, if you will, for where interest rates will be in the future. It's called the forward rate market. And this is where the market sets a price and an expectation for where interest rates will be in the future. Well, one of the things that you can look at in this betting market is where the market thinks that 10-year Treasury yields will be, say, five years into the future. And what we've seen is that over time, this expectation that interest rates in the future will be higher than they are today, those hopes continue to just get squashed. And when you look at this concept, how is that being priced today? The 10-year treasury yield, which is less than 1% today, what is the expectation? It's actually just above 1%. A lot of that hope has been squeezed out of the market at this point. I think the market and market participants have come around to this idea that we are mired in a very low interest rate environment for the foreseeable future. So let's assume that the market
0: is right and that rates in the future will continue to stay low. Although, as you just mentioned, the market hasn't proven to be quite good at predicting the future. But let's just say for argument's sake, they are. Shouldn't this be something that we're celebrating, low interest rates? I mean, if I can refinance a mortgage at a lower rate or I can take out a personal loan at a lower rate, why is that not a good thing?
1: Well, I think it is a good thing for anyone that wants to borrow money, right? Your mortgage rates are at incredibly low levels. Auto loans are at very low levels. And you've also seen the corporate world. A lot of companies have been taking advantage of this low interest rate environment to do a couple of things. One, as they borrowed, they've been reissuing debt at lower and lower interest rates. And because there's so much demand for yield, they've been extending the maturity of the bonds that they hold. So it has been a positive for a portion of the population. But on the other hand, it's been a pretty negative thing for investors You just aren't generating a lot of yield or a lot of coupon today, given where the response from central banks driving down interest rates lower, a lot of these structural demand issues where there's a huge amount of need for income, particularly from investors around the world that are, I'd say, more conservative, don't want to take a lot of risk. The yield on the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, which is one of the bellwethers that a lot of institutional and retail investors look at as a barometer or a broad benchmark for a good quality pool of bonds is about 1.4 percent, which is a record low number.
0: In response to the coronavirus, the crisis that we're living through, the Fed cut rates back to zero. That's Just one of many actions that policymakers around the world have taken to combat market volatility. So just curious from your perspective as a global investor, where are we right now? What stage are we in if you're looking at the markets globally?
1: Yeah, I think stage is the right word. So we've thought of it as the general pattern when you get in times like these, which are really volatile, is you see in stage one, there's a big risk off, a big aggressive selling behavior within the markets. And in that phase, you generally see there's a rush for liquidity, and that was certainly true in the month of March, and prices of everything fall. Stage two is when markets settle down a bit, and that rush for the exits abates, and investors start to pick through and look for opportunities. And then stage three is generally the recovery stage, and this is where It's risk on again and volatility really dies down and markets accelerate. I think we're quite a ways away from stage three, but I think we're well into stage two, this part of the historical series and historical precedent where investors like us are dissecting different asset classes, taking advantage of whatever cash they might have to look around and find opportunities that look attractive. That's really interesting how you've
0: characterized the market in terms of these three stages. I'm just curious, what signposts are you looking for to suggest that we're moving into stage three? Do we need to see a vaccine? Are you looking at the hospital data in New York? Are you looking at how the Chinese economy is doing as it's going back to work? Is it all of the above? What are some of the things that you're most curious about?
1: Well, it would be fantastic if there was evidence that a vaccine was coming around the corner but we think that's pretty unlikely. And most estimates that I've heard from people that we believe are well-established to make judgments around these sorts of things has a vaccine probably 12 to 18 months out. More realistically, we're hopeful that we will see some breakthrough from a treatment perspective more quickly than we'll see the vaccine come to market. And so I think that is probably the most important thing that would Give us more visibility around how quickly the economy will recover. So, the analogy that I think makes a lot of sense is that we're all staring over a valley right now, and we know that the valley's deep. We're not quite sure how deep it is or quite how far it is to the other side. But the second quarter GDP is going to be absolutely horrendous. Everybody knows that. And that's part of the reason we had such a big sell off. I think part of the reason we've seen a strong recovery particularly in the equity market, but also in some of the fixed income markets has been a combination of a slowing rate of new cases. So there's been progress on the virus front itself, but there's also been a tremendous and very aggressive reaction by central banks, in particular, the Federal Reserve, to put programs in place at a scale we've never seen before to put a floor under the economy as we go through this really uncertain period of time. So I think the market has support, but that's not to say we're in this recovery phase. And I think really the important thing here is not to get ahead of ourselves as investors, but to try to be patient. We're going through an unprecedented period of time. We like having dry powder. We like having cash. It gives us a lot of flexibility to put that cash to work as we see opportunities. But I think we should expect to see continued higher levels of volatility, not like we saw back in March. I don't think we'll see that again. But there is a lot of good news priced into the stock market at the moment. And I'm not so sure that it's going to be such smooth sailing, especially when we get to the hard part about the specific plans and programs and the cadence of how we're going to get back to normal after these lockdowns. And so just to be clear, it sounds
0: like the actions of central banks and governments, which you mentioned has been a global response, has been helpful. I think you used the term provided a floor, but it's not sufficient in and of itself to take us to that next stage of recovery.
1: I don't think so. They've done what they could, but until there's more clarity around the shape of the recovery, there's a lot of debate around, will this be a V-shaped recovery, a severe Contraction in the second quarter, followed by a similarly shaped recovery in the third and fourth quarter? Or will the slope of the recovery be a lot flatter than the sell off? And I think the market is coming around to the idea that a V shaped recovery is pretty unlikely as we start to think through the complexities of normalizing behavior again without triggering a second wave of virus patients. They were certainly bold they being the Fed and central bankers, they were definitely bold with these plans. And I think they will be there if needed to do more. And you mentioned that
0: because of the stage that we're in, we saw a lot of the indiscriminate selling and that now there are some investment opportunities that are starting to present themselves. So let's talk a little bit about that. You look at the world through the lens of income and thinking about how much cash flow and coupon can you generate from investment. So what looks interesting to you
1: when you look at the world through that lens? You know, if you went back, call it to the middle or end of February, a lot of what we would call good quality assets. So that would be things like investment grade bonds. It would even be really good quality stocks. Those quality types of assets around the world, for the most part, were really, really expensive. And then in that phase one stage that we went through, many of them sold off dramatically. And it honestly hasn't taken very long for a lot of other investors to come to the same conclusion and buy up a lot of those downbeaten, good quality parts of the market that were, in our view, really oversold back in the mid to late stages of March. That said, they haven't fully come back to where they were. And I still think that there's some strong value in, think of it as thematically as these up in quality parts of the market. And what you're seeing is kind of an interesting bifurcation. So if you were to look at a market like the high yield bond market, so these are not investment grade, sub-investment grade rated bonds, even within that part of the market, The best quality, the highest rated high yield bonds, which are rated double B, did suffer a pretty sharp sell off in the vicinity of 15 to 20 percent over the course of March. And they've retraced a lot of that. And in some instances, what are perceived to be the best quality double B bonds that are not in industries that are being disrupted by the virus, some of those types of bonds are essentially back to where they were. I'm really surprised at how quickly those retraced the sell off. At the other end of the spectrum are the lowest quality high yield bonds, the triple C rated high yield bonds, which by definition, those companies have a lot of leverage. And if you're a highly levered company in an industry that is being disrupted by coronavirus, Well, there are very legitimate questions about whether or not some of those companies are going to make it through. And those bonds sold off very sharply in March and really have not come back, in part because there's so much uncertainty around the outlook of those types of companies. So, Michael, it sounds like you're trying to be
0: opportunistic, but you also mentioned having some cash on hand. So that tells me that you think there might be more volatility at some point in the future and give you another interesting opportunity to buy maybe some of these high-quality assets that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, that's the right way to look at it. We are concerned that as we go through the earnings season where companies report their earnings and generally tell the investment community what they're expecting in the future with respect to their revenues and their profit outlook, they don't have a lot of visibility right now and companies are not providing forward guidance. They don't know themselves what their business is going to look like over the coming quarters. We're a little concerned that over the next few months, that weak visibility around what revenues will look like in the future, and the uncertainty around the duration of how long that might persist, could weigh on some of these asset classes, particularly on the fixed income side, where we think that, generally speaking, bond investors are more concerned about these cash flow issues than stock investors who will, I think, be more likely to look to the other side of the valley and think about, is this a good buying opportunity today? If I'm a long-term holder of stocks, Bond investors generally aren't quite wired that way. They're more focused on these short-term cash flow issues. So we like the idea of holding some cash and being patient, and we're going to watch how this plays out.
0: You touched on this concept of coupon and income and generating income from your investments. Why is this so important for investors?
1: You know, your yield is your paycheck. Maybe ignore the yield on a bond for a second and think about the return profile of a stock. So when you buy a stock, you're buying an ownership stake within the company. And with that, usually comes with some sort of dividend, usually pretty modest, but you'll get a dividend. And then you're obviously hoping that the earnings of that company are going to grow and that the price will rise. And so your total return over the long run for stocks has been a healthy contribution from the dividend, but a lot of that total return has been coming from the prices of those stocks moving higher as earnings propels the total value of the stock up. A little bit of a different story on the bond side where you're just hoping to get paid back. You're lending the company money. If it's a 10-year bond, 10 years from now, you get your money back. And along the way, you're getting your coupon, you're getting your yield. And so you're taking a lot less risk than in stocks, but that yield number is really important. So 20, 30 years ago, the yields that you were getting paid is that bondholder were a lot higher than you're getting paid today. We talked about the yield today on the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. If you imagine you're tying up your savings into an asset class that is only paying you 1.4 percent, it's hard to live off of for most people.
0: You mentioned the demographics and investors that are now retiring. In fact, in the U.S., there's 10,000 people a day that are retiring. And I did a little bit of math. So that's About 300,000 people a month, that's about the population of the cities of Orlando and Pittsburgh. And so these are folks now that are starting to think about how to spend some of the money that they've accumulated over their working years. How do they go about doing that? Is that easy or is there a risk that they run out of money?
1: It is so complicated and it sounds relatively straightforward, But when you start to think through the different permutations, it is really, really a complex problem if you're a retiree trying to, one, live off your nest egg in an environment with such low bond yields. So for a lot of people, if they saved X and they're only earning one and a half or 2% on a coupon on their investments, that's just not enough money to live off of, which then means that they need to carefully spin down some of that nest egg over time and one of the hardest things to know it's probably impossible to know at an individual level is life expectancy but if you happen to retire in the early stages of a bull market you're in the perfect position you can spend more money than you could probably imagine in retirement because in the early stage of your retirement The markets are going higher and the value of your portfolio is increasing even as you're taking money out conversely if you happen to retire at the front end of a bear market you really need to change your spending behavior really quickly spend less and really hunker down if you don't you're selling down a substantial portion of your nest egg and there's less there to recover when the markets eventually bounce back So a better answer is a more dynamic approach to adjusting your retirement spending depending on market conditions, at least a little bit.
0: Hey Michael, earlier you talked about the market's expectation for interest rates in the future. And it got me to thinking that one of the things I've been doing since I've been working from home is watching a lot of movies with my kids. And we recently watched the Back to the Future trilogy, which are some of my favorite movies. So if you were to travel into the future and encounter your older self, What would that older self be telling you about how you navigated this period of market volatility?
1: You know, you get paid as an investor to stay in the market, and it is very difficult to time the market, when to sell and when to buy. And I had a conversation with my father over the last week. He wanted to sell his U.S. equity exposure, and I was trying to convince him to stay the course. So I think in the long run, staying invested is the smart move. We're going to get through this. We're going to get to the other side of the valley and markets are going to recover and we're going to move on. I'm not trying to minimize how much uncertainty there is and will be over the next couple of quarters. It's going to be uncomfortable from time to time, but policymakers are not going to sit on their hands. They're going to do what they can to try to mitigate the turbulence. Michael, we usually end these podcasts with a rapid-fire
0: round where we ask a few personal questions. And given that we've all been working from home now for the past several weeks, we thought we would ask you about your own routine, if that works for you. Sure. Let's do it. So what piece of technology have you found the most
1: helpful? (laughs) So I stocked up when it became pretty clear that I was going to be working from home for a while. I bought a professional gaming headset, which it looks ridiculous and people are giving me a hard time saying I look like a helicopter pilot with this thing on, but the audio is phenomenal and the microphone's really clear. So that was my best call so far. Besides running into me by the water cooler,
0: what do you miss about going to your office in New York City?
1: You know, I don't miss my roughly 90-minute one-way commute. I don't miss riding the Metro North, but it is really odd having all of our team meetings over the phone and not just bumping into people and sitting in the same room with everyone. We've been doing weekly team happy hours via Zoom and things like that. You
0: mentioned you're saving 90 minutes on your commute. So what new hobbies, if any, have you taken on now that you have more time at home?
1: I'm a bit of a car enthusiast. And so I've gotten into a lot of these professional car detailing YouTube videos and bought a lot of equipment with spray foam and spending a lot of time seriously detailing cars and waxing them. And I've had a lot of Amazon deliveries, let's put it that way, with specialty chemicals. We've also started growing vegetables. So it's still pretty cold in Connecticut where I live and we can't plant them outside, but we've got a bunch of early stage vegetable seeds that are sprouting. And I think in the next week or two, be ready to go. I've actually never gardened before. And do you think when we go back to normal,
0: whenever that is, do you think you'll be working from home more than you did in the past?
1: I think so. We've been talking a lot about that, I think in part because it's worked really well. And I do think that there's something to be said for the team dynamic of actually physically being present, at least part of the time. So I bet it'll be more of a blend of maybe we spend two or three days a week in the office and two or three days a week at home. Well, Michael, I hope
0: you're right. And I look forward to seeing you back in the office. Thank you so much for joining us on The Bid.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Oscar.
2: This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management, U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, Registered Office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 7743 registered in England and Wales number 202 0394 for your protection telephone calls are usually recorded blackrock is a trading name of blackrock investment management uk limited in singapore this is issued by blackrock singapore limited co-registration number 200010143n in hong kong this material is issued by blackrock asset management north asia limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13 165 975 afsl 230 523 bimal The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.